Right, welcome friends. My name is Jude Monk McGowan and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects, or the Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation, who are a US-based non-profit organization. If you're curious about what they do, you can go to their website, epicprojects.org. So the guest we have for you today is the educator and entrepreneur, Dean Bragronier. Dean is the founder and executive dyslexic of Noticeability Incorporated, which is a non-profit organization dedicated to helping students with dyslexia identify their unique strengths and build up their self-esteem. Noticeability is the culmination of Dean's passion for education and his conviction that the advantages of dyslexia far outweigh its associated challenges. Self-actualization is the word he loves the most, and that's what his companies are all about. As always, this is a podcast to support the brilliant work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of dyslexic people so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. And they have a free online screening tool which you can use to assess yourself or a loved one for dyslexia. As you'll hear from the podcast, Dean is uh, effervescent. He's uh, an incredibly um, engaging person to talk with. And uh, he's uh, deeply, deeply passionate about not only his work, but about self-actualization, about helping young people build up their self-esteem. He recognizes how crucial self-esteem is for young people uh, to succeed and to find their niche, to find the thing that they enjoy doing or they excel at, and, and how, given the right circumstances around that particular talent, they can succeed just as much as anybody else. So. It's a special episode, in my opinion. You're going to have a great time. I certainly did when we were recording it. Here it is. Dean, hello. How are you? Good, mate. Thanks for having me. This is exciting to speak to somebody across the puddle. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's one of the things I've loved about doing this podcast, certainly in this time, COVID time, because we've only ever really done it COVID time. Um, we've only ever done one in-person recording, is to be able to connect um, with with people like yourselves, um, specialists uh, in America um, who who do this, talk about dyslexia for a living. I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's that is one silver lining, and you got to search for one during these times. But yeah, the uh, the virtual world has brought uh, us together in, in in unique ways. Absolutely, adaption. That's what we've got to do. Be be creative. Think laterally. That's right. <laughs> that's- um, okay, so why don't we jump into you, Dean? So, where are you from in the world? Where are you now? Um, and uh, and and how did you come upon your life's work? Sure. Well, uh, you're catching me in Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, I, I I was born in New York. Uh, ironically, lived on a boat for three years on the Hudson River when I was a just a little ankle biter and uh, wow. eventually moved out. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience. Um, uh, it, I, I still, I still, the moment I step on a boat to this day, I can't help but to fall asleep. So uh, who, who, you know, obviously goes back to, to being in a crib for three years on, on a, on a non-stable vessel. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know, I, I eventually moved up to, to, to Massachusetts, 
for high school and then went to college up in Maine, which is about as far north as you can get in this country. And, you know, I, I, I guess I, I think it's safe to say that from a dyslexic perspective, I, I was given a lot of advantages. And by that, I mean uh, a mother who was a child developmental psychologist and a father who was a diagnosed dyslexic. So, yes. you know, so the, the, the sort of the radars, the antenna were up. And so that when I started presenting as dyslexic and the associated struggles, um, there was an awareness that allowed us to get, you know, the testing and then ultimately uh, the reading intervention that I needed. So I, I thank yeah. both of them for that, that um, you know, that ability to recognize what I needed early on. And for a guy born in 1973 and getting these sort of services when I was about what third grade eight nine years old that's a really progressive agenda so yeah, i yeah yeah and i you know it's it, it's and it's a progressive agenda for today i mean that's mm. that's the horrific thing is that it hasn't become standardized this sort of detection has not yet become standardized um no. but jude you know the reason why i i i bring up these these advantages uh is because I got everything that everyone prescribed as being necessary to get a person with dyslexia in a position of empowerment. And I'm here to say that it's not all it takes, you know, mm. the experience of being dyslexic. And I know the UK system because I've got two brothers that went through it. Um, you know, it's, it's not a hospitable place uh, no. either, either country. And, no. and the reality is that, even if you're getting the accommodations that you need, you can't help but to feel as if you're this broken toy that came off the assembly line wrong, right? You yeah. go to the little room to get tinkered with and then reintegrate it and they see if, you know, the upgrade holds and you can't help but to internalize this narrative that you were born broken, right? Yeah. Totally, totally. Certainly, certainly my experience as well. And I, and, and like yourself, I count myself incredibly lucky. I think quite, uh, you know, we'll get into how the dyslexic brain is, is wired and how it's different from, from, um, uh, should we say atypical brains. Um, but it, I, I knew I was lucky because my mum was dyslexic and, and she was uh, a counsellor as well. And, and she was also on the board uh, of advisors for my school, so she so she could be there and and fight the good fight. Um, I, th I think I mean you know if, if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes it takes a city to to provide for you know neurodivergent children. You know like and I could see issues with my my school fellows um, at secondary school, which is your high school, and I and I sort of thought they must be dyslexic as well, and they have they didn't have a parent who had the vernacular to talk about it and fight that fight and use use their experience to get the help that I needed. You know, your your story just like mine boils down to parent advocates. You know, yeah. and and yeah. the fundamental part of that is knowing what dyslexia is. And and in your case your mother in my case my father having dyslexia predisposes mm. them to understanding it but then that just the knowledge doesn't mean that the game is won it is the beginning no. of a very arduous often contentious journey in order to get 
their children what we need. And, and, and we are unfortunately exceptions to the rule. Many, yeah. many people don't understand what this is and they pass it along hereditarily and, and think, oh, you know, you're dumb like me, you know, yeah. everybody's got to, everybody's got to have, you know, manual laborers guess that's what I do. And I know that's not a, that's not a, that's not a, a jab at manual labor. I, I actually adore working with my hands, but the point is to understand and to a, 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 a provide the student with an opportunity to choose what they want to do is what, what education is designed and uh, to, to, to address, I think. But again, you've gotten me on a soapbox already. Well, I, I want you on that soapbox. I want to want to keep you there as, as long as I can, because having heard you talk about this very eloquently, um, certainly in your TED talk, which I advise everybody to be um, watching, and, I, and we're going to provide a little link um, within the uh, the show notes um, about how education is structured, and it was structured after the Industrial Revolution, more towards you know having good factory workers as opposed to what is your purpose or what is the road for your self-actualization. You know, I just watched a video with Steven Spielberg talking about his diagnosis only two years ago as dyslexic, and it was filmmaking that pulled him out of, you know, the um, the self-loathing stage that lots of dyslexics know about. And, and you talk about in your TED Talk as comparable to the feeling of uh, the shame people feel when, when they commit incest. Um, yeah. If you don't have that purpose, if you don't have parents who help you find the thing that you 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 excel at, then it's it's going to be a very miserable life in school and beyond. For sure, and and you know, I you just used a term that I adore, which is self actualization, right? Mm. This goes back to Maslow's hierarchy, and that the top of that pyramid is self actualization, which of course is feeling as if we are contributing to our community in a way where we are valued and we and we adore contributing in the way that we have chosen to and you yes. know i think you know we talk about spielberg and we talk about you know some of these historical huge change agents like ford and you know edison all these amazing people but self actualization i don't necessarily think is equated with becoming somebody who makes a mark in a history book. I mean, one of the most self-actualized people I've ever met was this guy named Danny, who I was lucky enough to have shine my shoes at the shoe science station out in the Minneapolis airport. We got to talking and he said, oh, you know, I'm actually being recognized as the uh, as the entrepreneur of the community next month because I've grown my business into nine different shoe shine stations in this terminal. I go, ah, you're, you are an entrepreneur. He said, yeah, I was never good in school. I said, wait a minute, tell me a little bit more about that. And very quickly, we realized that, you know, he's dyslexic like me. And the idea yeah. was, Danny is being appreciated. He feels valued. He's got nine stands going in one airport. That's self-actualization. You don't have to yeah. be sitting on a billion dollars or quid, as you would say. You yeah. just feel valuable. And that's what yes. I want everybody to feel. Yes, absolutely. And you you do discussions for parents, caregivers uh, around around dyslexia and, 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 and about, I, I, I would think, um, helping children uh, via their parents to understand dyslexia 
Um, and then also understanding, uh, as, as you put it, the, the four things that dyslexic people excel at. Um, and I'd, I'd love you to, to talk about that. Sure. Well, you know, I'm pilfering everything I'm about to say from, from the work of, of Brock and Fernet Eid, uh, or ID, depending on how you want to pronounce it, uh, their book called The Dyslexic Advantage. And, uh, you know, it, it spells out through thousands of interviews, these two neuroscientists, uh, with, with thousands of dyslexics. And it, it's created, it's generated sort of a, a, a cognitive profile of dyslexic assets. And then what they've done is they've gone and taken those assets and revealed how they apply to disproportionate rates of success in certain professional paths. So I will take you, Jude, for example, mm -hmm. right? Yep. You're an actor. You've got an extraordinary ability to tell a story, right? You have what these two authors would term, would call narrative reasoning. Your ability to have a cute episodic memory, meaning, you know, the, the time that little Jude fell off his bike and, you know, broke his leg. Well, he can tell me exactly what the sun was like that day, where he was riding, what he was wearing. You have mm. the ability to take that memory and then to sort of customize it to whatever script you are about to perform, right? You may yeah. be a soldier in a war reenactment. You've never been shot and killed on a battlefield, but you can conjure up that narrative of what it mm. feels like to look down and see the blood on your pants and go, I can, I can, I can tell that story, albeit through a different medium, right? That yeah. dyslexic capacity is why so many of us excel in the arts, for example. My wife being another dyslexic who is one of the most astounding artists I've ever met in my life, right? But mm. that's not our only path, right? We tend to excel. There are many. There's about three to five pages devoted in the back of this book. But the top four that we've identified are the arts, entrepreneurship, engineering, and architecture, and I'll mm. give you one example. I said that I live in Boston. Well, that's actually code word for the fact that I live adjacent to Boston in the city of Cambridge, the home of MIT right. and Harvard. And they call dyslexia the MIT disease, right? This is yeah. the most competitive engineering university in the world. Forgive me if there's a competitor in the UK that I don't know about, but it's pretty much the best in class. And it's riddled with dyslexics. And yeah. so you have to ask yourself, is it really a disability? Is it? I, <laughs> I think yeah. not. Yes. Um, you, you've touched on this again, again, in, in some of the uh, uh, videos I've seen of you, but in terms of from an evolutionary point of view, the advantages of, of dyslexia and then how those advantages were robbed from us when the written word became the primary mode of uh, I guess, conveying human meaning. Yeah. I mean, look, first of all, if you want to take a Darwinian approach to this, right? You know, if dyslexia was this evolutionary glitch or disadvantage, in theory, we 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 would not be perpetuating, right? The Darwinian subscribes to the survival of the fittest. My theory is that prior to the 
ubiquitous use of the written word, which became the only way to essentially distribute mass education after the, after the Industrial Revolution and the invention of the printing press, the idea that I subscribe to is that we, as people with dyslexic, who, like I said, are exceptional at kinesthetic learning and, 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 and executing with our hands and our tactile senses, I would imagine that we ruled the roost. Right. Mm. You're, you're, you're talking about going back. I mean, you know, you were the United States is an infant by comparison to the UK, but going back, you know, millennia in human history, the primary way of learning was an apprenticeship model. Right. Even if it wasn't called that, I mean, our, our, you know, brothers and sisters back in the caves, they were watching and doing by watching. That's how we do yeah. things. Right. That's how we learn. And then ironically, you introduce this, you know, it's, it's, it is an artificial medium. I mean, it's, it's a bunch of squiggly lines on a piece of paper that we've all decided represent sounds. And we've made the invisible, which is the spoken word, all of a sudden visible through this artificial medium. You basically codify that and say, hey, if you want to get an education, you have to learn this medium. And guys like you and me, we just at first glance said, whoa. I, I something is amiss because this doesn't resonate with me and everyone else is just breezing through this. So I think we've gone through uh, we've gone through a tough couple of, you know, well, it hasn't been a couple of centuries, but coming up on a couple of centuries where we have been put in an inherent disadvantage. Yet despite mm. that, you know, your your boy over there, Branson, is crushing it. Right. <laughs> so so, yeah. you know, we aren't being weeded out. So I think we're a resilient stock, and that makes me think that perhaps we're we we've got a genetic advantage that just needs to be uh, uh, given the proper accommodations to thrive. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's it. I mean, at the, at the moment, the way we are helping dyslexic people self-actualize clearly isn't fit for purpose. Um, it makes us uh, hardy people, as you say. Um, because we have to go through, as you said, it's, it's something like five times more difficult for dyslexic people um, to apply themselves to read than it is for people who are uh, atypical uh, in terms of, you know, their, their neurological pathways. Um, and it's it's fascinating. Quite often, when, when when I talk to an educator like yourself or or, or somebody who's engaged in in, in uh, you know finding ways to help dyslexic people, we come back to education systems whether it's here or in the US and it doesn't feel like we're any closer yet um to to helping people it, it quite often means that that parents spend uh, almost uh one and a half grand a year extra sometimes on average to help their child who has dyslexia I love I love that you just said one and a half grand uh because mm. in the United States one and a half thousand dollars or let's call it two thousand dollars based on the exchange rate is yeah. you know is 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 first and foremost is not affordable to a vast majority mm. of american families but even if no. it were at least based on the way our system runs in the united states uh 2k two grand is is a rounding error in what it actually costs over the lifetime the academic lifetime of a student with dyslexia. 
I mean, I, I, my son right now, it, here's, here's, a, here's a, a brain number for you. Yeah. In the United States, our public education system subscribes to the fact that a child with diagnosed dyslexia has to get re-diagnosed every three years in order to justify the accommodations they get in the public education system. Wow. We know that this is not going away in three years, and I would say arguably, thank God, it doesn't go away at any point during our life. But no. the point being that our educational system, and I won't get sinister and gloomy on this, but it is stacked against a dyslexic diagnosis. So if a mm. family has the wherewithal, both financial as well as a just a cognitive understanding of what dyslexia is, they will spend a minimum of a thousand upwards of five thousand dollars to get a private neuropsychological evaluation that will give the family a proper diagnosis of dyslexia now if you look at the cross-section of american society even on the low end a thousand dollars come on that's 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 an expenditure that yeah it's totally untenable and that's yeah. just the tip of the iceberg that doesn't even go into the OG-based reading remediation or any of the other, the other financial burdens that a family has to, to has to has to take on. No, it's it's mind blowing. Well, essentially, whether you are saying this um, outright or not, essentially, you are saying the it's only the children of rich people who deserve support for for what is a disability for what is you know should be considered like someone in a wheelchair. You know, it's it's not. Surely, it's 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 not a way to proceed to help everyone be the best that they can be. You couldn't you couldn't have said it better. And and you know the irony is certainly in the United States, and I think this is somewhat of a global perception, is that dyslexia is a rich white kid disease, yeah. and that is such a horrific classification because mm. this is an equal opportunity learning difference it is arguably i mean some say conservatively 7% many say 20% let's just say conservatively 15% of the global population doesn't matter what mm. language you speak no matter what ethnicity nationality gender it is 15% so yeah why is it known as a rich white kid disease because it is an incredibly cost prohibitive diagnosis that does not yet get catered to. Yeah. It's fascinating. I was, I was speaking to Glenn Young a couple of weeks ago, um, who worked uh, for the federal government and, and was a, is a fellow dyslexic as well. And, and did a lot of work in terms of getting um, dyslexia appreciated for, for what he is. And he, and he was saying there's, there's also, there's also a great deal of racism attributed to that, you know, and, 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 and the way the parents' brains worked, was that it was like fix my kid, not not um, you know appreciate my my the difference that my child has. It was that you know this is a, an affliction that you need to fix. Um, yeah. So the approach there is 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 wrong as well. And I want to come back and 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 go over the sort of content of of of, of the talks you do to parents to help them understand dyslexia. Well, you know, I mean, I think the first, the, you know, we, we try to, I try to identify the elephant in the room. And this, this is just hearing the very uh, reluctant confession of a lot of parents. We address the fact that they've done nothing wrong. Mm. This is not 
This is not a byproduct of, you know, not reading to your kid enough. This is not a byproduct of not being sensitive enough. Look, the fact that parents are attending one of our seminars is acknowledgement that they are being proactive. And what has happened in the past is in the past. Now is the present and how to move forward and support your child first and foremost. And that sense of guilt of not knowing is something that I see weighs heavily on a lot of parents. And and I do it. I mean, my wife is dyslexic. I'm dyslexic. We try to treat our purebred dyslexic with every nuance possible, but we miss it. Sometimes we swing and miss on occasion, and that's to be expected. So we just try to alleviate that sense of shame associated mm-hmm. with bad parenting. It's not. You're in the audience, and that's a sign of a great parent or listening Mm. to this podcast, that's proactive. Um, You know, and then what we talk about is really just trying to share with the parents or the caregivers what that dyslexic experience feels like. Because I have yet to meet a child who doesn't want to satisfy and please their parents. Mm. It is an innate quality I think that we're all born with, but we very quickly as people with dyslexia will learn that we fall short because the system is rigged against us. And and the the byproduct of that is myriad different roads. I don't care about school. I'm stupid, I'm not gonna try. Or if you're lucky, I'm the jock, right? I happen mm-hmm to do well on the, well, I would say soccer, but for this conversation, football field. And therefore, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> I find the accolades, you know, I get the praise of my parents and my peers. But if you don't meet that, you know, if you can't thread that needle, then chances are the guy's smoking a little reefer behind school after, you know, or the guy's going out and jacking a car or whatever it is, they've got a very low barrier uh, of entry into those communities, right? So you yeah. pick up the beer, you smoke the grass, you do, and then all of a sudden you feel like you belong. And what mm. happens is that the parent says, What is this? You're getting involved in chemical abuse. Why aren't you trying? Why don't you care? The problem is that the, the kid has, has given up long ago. And it's not because they're weak, but because they're an eight-year-old going up against an entire systemic predisposition that tells them they are broken when you couldn't be uh, further from the mark. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and and it stands to reason, doesn't it? If you feel a great sense of self-loathing and shame and embarrassment around something you feel like you should just be able to do because everyone else is doing it, why wouldn't you try and take the edge off life? It's a very human compulsion, isn't it? This is overwhelming. I want to escape. Um, and, you know, the, the, the figures, again, are, are, are evident in terms of people who might abuse substances because they feel um, uh, sad and frustrated about um, their dyslexia that quite often they don't know they have. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like it's like putting your boy Beckham into like a music school and being like you're useless man because you can't play the clarinet. Yeah. yeah. He may be the best football player in the world, but he's going to think that you know he's 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 not fit for this world. And how is that going to manifest? I don't know. He's going to probably go get some tattoos. Oh, sorry. Maybe that's not a good example. 
<laughs> well, you know, hey, it's it's our boy Einstein again. You know, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, you'll always be disappointed. Exactly. Uh, you, it's again, we come back to self actualization. Whether or not that is, you know, being being a, a billionaire entrepreneur, it, 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 it's what that looks like for you. Um, and and that brings us to how you found this work. How is it that you came across this work? Was it was it born of your frustration or, or because it was a family thing? You, Jude, my answer could be spoken by your mother, right? I, I, I you know, I, I, I hold this little, this little pink human in my arms moment after he's been born and I look down at him and I have the euphoria of becoming a father and then the cold sweat realization that this kid is going to go into a system that nearly broke me and nearly broke my wife. And mm. am I going to stick my head in the sand or am I going to take what I've learned as a small business entrepreneur and, you know, knowing what I know now, am I going to create something for him that can potentially buoy his self-esteem until he can get through school and into the world that desperately craves innovation and creativity and communication where I know he will thrive. And so, I, you know, I, I, I tell this story frequently is that a friend of ours was, was just messing around with my boy and a couple of his buddies and his son. He was hitting these tennis balls up into the air and he, everyone was trying to catch it. And he goes, last one, he goes, all right, this, this one's for all the marbles, right? He hits a ball up in the air. My son, my son is like seven years old and he hears marbles somehow being valuable. So the kid gets all like obsessive. He starts collecting marbles for like any opportunity. He's got thousands of marbles and he's walking around trying to show people his marbles and they're spilling out of his, you know, his, his, his pants, pockets and his jacket. And so I sit him down and Bodie, what are we going to do about this? Right. You can't transport them this way. Long story short, he comes up with something called pocket change where he and my wife create a couple of little prototypes where he stitched today, stitched together these little, these little external fabric pockets and glue into them those like high test magnet balls. So that what he's all of a sudden able to do now is put a magnet ball inside his jacket and then adhere one of these external pockets to his pants, his jackets, whatever he wants, right? He's got his business called Pocket Change. So I said, all right, Bodie, this is genius, man. Let's sit down. And I go to something here in the United States called the Small Business Association. It's a government website, among other things, where you can just enter your ideas for a business plan. And I ask him all these questions. He's seven, eight years old at the time. He spits out his answers about what he's going to retail these things for. Not used in that language, but, you know, how much is he going to sell them for, right? These sort of things. And we get this business plan that I'm putting in front of this eight-year-old and he's going off and creating these prototypes in a little storefront out of a cardboard box, right? And I think to myself, this is what's going to buoy his self-esteem is seeing what he's good at. Mm. And so, like I said, I live here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? I mean, uh, you, 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 you can't swing a dead hat, cat without hitting like a professor at Harvard. <laughs> and I got a bunch yeah. of my buddies here. And so I go, hey, yeah. guys, will you guys help me out? I want to create a course based on entrepreneurship, where we use blended learning for kids with dyslexia. That means that kids will get together in person and they will do project-based learning. But the other half, where we teach content, will be online so that we can teach 
the fundamentals of entrepreneurship using audio and video and graphic and pictorial tools in order mm. to circumvent text as the barrier to learning. Yeah. And so luckily, you know, Harvard was was generous in, in helping us create the first program. And, uh, and then we said, why don't we do it for arts, engineering and architecture? And so, you know, seven years later, we've got, uh, we consolidated two into one course. And so we've got three courses that are now used in, I think last count was like 31 states and 26 countries. So it was just, it was just, it was selfish, Jude. It was selfish. I wanted my boy to have something he felt good about. Well, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And, and there's, there's something about the, the force of a parent um, who wants to make a better world for their child um, through the seemingly selfish, we, we get something um, incredibly altruistic um, and, and, and beautiful. Um, but I mean, I should, I should think for you, incredibly life-affirming as well. When I found acting and I was very young and I, I realised it was, you know, something, a, a font, as it were, that I could go back to, to drink from, you know, fairly regularly, there was always going to be a school show. There was always going to be, um, you know, a, a project. There's always going to be a class where I could work on this, this thing. Um, and don't get me wrong, I, was, I wasn't amazing at it, um, but I, I knew I had something very raw and it, it, it then gave me something that I can pursue for my entire life. You know, I could, as long as I can remember lines, I can do it for the whole of my life. There's, there's something about being able to draw from that well um, to go back and, and you're giving people that opportunity, aren't you? You're, 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 you're saying, okay, you've got an idea. Um, here's, here's a prism through which that idea can, can be shown to people. And you're getting them addicted to that feeling of look what I did. Look, look, look what I achieved. Well, it's, you know, I, I, I will, I will take that gracious compliment. Uh, I will, I will, I will dilute it a little bit by saying that, yes, we have created a couple of courses that are designed to uh, allow students to flip that switch of inspiration within themselves. And if they can see how their brains are so powerful, then it's really difficult to convince them that they're stupid. And that's what we're trying to do is create a counter narrative that they can incorporate into their daily thought system. Now, you know, what we do is a microcosm of what can be done uh, at home. And, and mm -hmm. one of our, our greatest pieces of advice to parents is that the, the clues to your child's empowerment are right in front of you. It's the thing, as my wife likes to say, where they lose time, right? Mm. It's like, you know, Jude is up there. I don't know. He's got on funky looking clothes and he's practicing monologues in <laughs> front of the mirror. And I got to call him down to dinner because it's getting cold. Well, there is his passion point. When you yeah. are can't pull him away from something, that is a really strong indicator that that can be the buoy for them to latch on to until they can survive academics and get to a point where they can thrive. And, yeah. you know, the, the, the last thing I will say, unless, you know, unless you continue to let me chime on is that <laughs> in the book, the dyslexic advantage, they have something called the 700 club. And in the United States, we have a, just a 
primitive, archaic, asinine, standardized test called the SATs. It's what you've got to go through in order to get into to most colleges. The mm. maximum score is 1,600. You get, apparently, you get 300 points for writing your name correctly. Now, the 700 <laughs> Club are global entrepreneurs who all scored a cumulative, meaning there's two parts to the test, a cumulative score of 700 or less on their SATs. And the authors say to them, with all due respect, how did you change your life trajectory from somebody who performed so miserably to somebody who is who you are today? And each and, of, each and every one of them says, with, 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 with the clarity as if they were living it in that moment, they can tell you the exact time, place, and circumstances in which somebody, an aunt, an uncle, a coach, a friend, a mother, a parent, stopped and said, hey, Jude, you were pretty good in that, in that play. Mm. I didn't know you had a flair for this. Mm. Just that little throwaway affirmation that the person who said it probably didn't think twice about saying, that is what caused these individuals to change their life trajectory. And so what we are trying to do, as I said, is create a systemic opportunity for that 700 club moment for students to recognize what they are good at. Because not all of us are fortunate to have a mom like yours or a coach that cares or an aunt or uncle or a friend that articulates what they notice in us. Hmm. That's a beautiful note with which to end on Dean um, I want to thank you for uh, for that I think that was magnificent um, and I hope the, the listeners enjoy it uh, we will of course as I say uh, have links to all of your material in, in the show notes thank you so much Jude thank you man and uh, hopefully when we're over in the UK in March uh, I can buy you fish and chips and we'll chat <laughs> well, I, I'm a vegetarian, so I'll, I'll gladly take um, some chips and so uh, am I, and we'll man. Get a beer. So am I. Good, good. There you so go. am I. So we'll we'll figure out an alternative, but something greasy and tasty. We will. I mean, I, you know, I, I, you probably know this, but the, the UK in the last 10, 15 years has, in terms of being a place for good food, um, certainly London and, and places like Manchester and Liverpool. I mean, you can get some incredible food, um, which isn't just uh, fish and chips. <laughs> it's, not, it's not to um, be down on fish and chips. They, they have their, their time and place, but, um, you know, we've got a lot more options for you. Well, let's, let's meet at your favorite veggie spot. How about that? That would be great. I'd love that. I'd love that. Excellent. All well, right. thank you for taking the time and thank you for, uh, for listening to my, uh, my diatribe here. Hey, that's exactly what we want. That's exactly what we want. It was great. Um, I'm sure people will love it. So thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia with me, Jude Monk McGowan. My guest today was Dean Bragronier. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and EPIC Projects, or Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation. EPIC is a USA-based, non-profit organisation. EPIC creates bonds among caring people devoted to solving global challenges of poverty, food insecurity, 
environmental degradation, human rights, and making peace. Go to their website, epicprojects.org. There are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. And please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects. If you enjoyed this episode, please go and rate, subscribe, leave us a little review even. It really helps the podcast grow.